Chapter Fifty Three of the Golden Bow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Bow by Sir James Fraser. Chapter Fifty Three. The Propitiation of Wild Animals by Hunters. The explanation of life by the theory of an indwelling and practically immortal soul is one which the savage does not confine to human beings, but extends to the animate creation in general. In so doing, he is more liberal, and perhaps more logical than the civilized man, who commonly denies to animals the privilege of immortality which he claims for himself. The savage is not so proud. He commonly believes that animals are endowed with feelings and intelligence like those of men, and that, like men, they possess souls which survive the death of their bodies, either to wander about as disembodied spirits, or to be born again in animal form. Thus to the savage, who regards all living creatures as practically on a footing of equality with man, the act of killing and eating an animal must wear a very different aspect from that which the same act presents to us, who regard the intelligence of animals as far inferior to our own, and deny them the possession of immortal souls. Hence, on the principles of his rude philosophy, the primitive hunter who slays an animal believes himself exposed to the vengeance, either of its disembodied spirit, or of all the other animals of the same species, whom he considers as knit together, like men, by the ties of kin and the obligations of the blood feud, and therefore as bound to resent the injury done to one of their number. Accordingly, the savage makes it a rule to spare the life of those animals which he has no pressing motive for killing, at least such fierce and dangerous animals as are likely to exact a bloody vengeance for the slaughter of one of their kind. Crocodiles are animals of this sort. They are only found in hot countries, where, as a rule, food is abundant and primitive man has therefore little reason to kill them for the sake of their tough and unpalatable flesh. Hence it is a custom with some savages to spare crocodiles or rather only to kill them in obedience to the law of blood feud, that is, as a retaliation for the slaughter of men by crocodiles. For example, the Diaks of Borneo will not kill a crocodile unless a crocodile has first killed a man. For why, say they, should they commit an act of aggression, when he and his kindred can so easily repay them? But should the alligator take a human life, revenge becomes a sacred duty of the living relatives, who will trap the man-eater in the spirit of an officer of justice pursuing a criminal. Others, even then, hang back, reluctant to embroil themselves in a quarrel which does not concern them. The man-eating alligator is supposed to be pursued by a righteous nemesis, and whenever one is caught they have a profound conviction that it must be the guilty one, or his accomplice. Like the Diaks, the natives of Madagascar never kill a crocodile, except in retaliation for one of their friends who have been destroyed by a crocodile. They believe that the wanton destruction of one of these reptiles will be followed by the loss of human life in accordance with the principle of Lex Talionis. The people who live near the lake Itasi in Madagascar make a yearly proclamation to the crocodiles, announcing that they will revenge the death of some of their friends by killing as many crocodiles in return, and warning all well-disposed crocodiles to keep out of the way as they have no quarrel with them, but only with their evil-minded relations who have taken human life. Various tribes of Madagascar believe themselves to be descended from crocodiles, and accordingly they view the scaly reptile as, 
to all intents and purposes, a man and a brother. If one of the animals should so far forget himself as to devour one of his human kinsfolk, the chief of the tribe, or in his absence an old man familiar with the tribal customs, repairs at the head of the people to the edge of the water, and summons the family of the culprit to deliver him up to the arm of justice. A hook is then baited and cast into the river or lake. Next day the guilty brother, or one of his family, is dragged ashore, and after his crime has been clearly brought home to him by a strict interrogation, he is sentenced to death and executed. The claims of justice being thus satisfied, and the majesty of the law fully vindicated, the deceased crocodile is lamented and buried like a kinsman, a mound is raised over his relics, and a stone marks the place of his head. Again, the tiger is another of those dangerous beasts whom the savage prefers to leave alone, lest by killing one of the species he should excite the hostility of the rest. No consideration will induce a Sumatran to catch or wound a tiger except in self-defense, or immediately after a tiger has destroyed a friend or relation. When a European has set traps for tigers, the people of the neighborhood have been known to go by night to the place and explain to the animals that the traps are not set by them, nor with their consent. The inhabitants of the hills near Rajamahal, in Bengal, are very averse to killing a tiger, unless one of their kinsfolk has been carried off by one of the beasts. In that case, they go out for the purpose of hunting and slaying a tiger, and when they have succeeded, they lay their bows and arrows on the carcass and invoke God, declaring that they slew the animal in retaliation for the loss of a kinsman. Vengeance having been thus taken, they swear not to attack another tiger except under similar provocation. The Indians of Carolina would not molest snakes when they came upon them, but would pass by on the other side of the path, believing that if they were to kill a serpent, the reptile's kindred would destroy some of their brethren, friends, or relations in return. So the Seminole Indians spared the rattlesnake, because they feared that the soul of the dead rattlesnake would incite its kinsfolk to take vengeance. The Cherokee regard the rattlesnake as the chief of the snake tribe, and fear and respect him accordingly. Few Cherokee will venture to kill a rattlesnake, unless they cannot help it, and even then they must atone for the crime by craving pardon of the snake's ghost, either in their own person or through the mediation of a priest, according to a set formula. If these precautions are neglected, the kinsfolk of the dead snake will send one of their number as an avenger of blood, who will track down the murderer and sting him to death. No ordinary Cherokee dares to kill a wolf, if he can possibly help it, for he believes that the kindred of the slain beast would surely avenge its death, and that the weapon with which the deed has been done would be quite useless for the future, unless it were cleaned and exercised by a medicine man. However, certain persons who know the proper rights of atonement for such a crime can kill wolves with impunity, and they are sometimes hired to do so by people who have suffered from the raids of the wolves on their cattle or fish traps. In Jebel Nuba, a district of the eastern Sudan. It is forbidden to touch the nests or remove the young of a species of blackbirds, resembling our blackbirds, because the people believe that the parent bird would avenge the wrong by causing a stormy wind to blow, which would destroy the harvest. But the savage clearly cannot afford to spare all animals. He must either eat some of them or starve, and when the question thus comes to whether he or the animal should perish, 
is forced to overcome his superstitious scruples and take the life of the beast. At the same time, he does all he can to appease his victims and their kinsfolk. Even in the act of killing them, he testifies his respect for them, endeavors to excuse or even conceal his share in procuring their death, and promises that their remains will be honorably treated. By thus robbing death of its terrors, he hopes to reconcile his victims to their fate, and to induce their fellows to come and be killed also. For example, it was a principle with the Kamchatkans never to kill a land or sea animal without first making excuses to it, and begging that the animal would not take it ill. Also, they offered it cedar nuts and so forth, to make it think that it was not a victim, but a guest at a feast. They believed that this hindered other animals of the same species from growing shy. For instance, after they had killed a bear and feasted on its flesh, the host would bring the bear's head before the company, wrap it in grass, and present it with a variety of trifles. Then he would lay the blame of the bear's death on the Russians, and bid the beast wreak his wrath upon them. Also he would ask the bear to inform the other bears how well he had been treated, that they too might come without fear. Seals, sea lions, and other animals were treated by the Kamchatkans with the same ceremonious respect. Moreover, they used to insert sprigs of a plant resembling bear's wort in the mouths of the animals they killed, after which they would exhort the grinning skulls to have no fear, but to go and tell it to their fellows, that they also might come and be caught and so partake of this splendid hospitality. When the Ostiaks have hunted and killed a bear, they cut off its head and hang it on a tree. Then they gather round in a circle and pay it divine honours. Next they run towards the carcass, uttering lamentations and saying, Who killed you? It was the Russians. Who cut off your head? It was a Russian axe. Who skinned you? It was a knife made by the Russians. They explained too that the feathers which sped the arrow on its flight came from the wing of a strange bird, and that they did nothing but let the arrow go. They do all this because they believe that the wandering ghost of the slain bear would attack them on the first opportunity, if they did not thus appease it. Or they stuffed the skin of the slain bear with hay, and after celebrating their victory with songs of mockery and insult, after spitting on and kicking it, they set it up on its hind legs, and then, for a considerable time, they bestow on it all the veneration due to a guardian god. When a party of Koryak have killed a bear or a wolf, they skin the beast and dress one of themselves in the skin. Then they dance around the skin-clad man, saying that it was not they who killed the animal, but someone else, generally a Russian. When they kill a fox, they skin it, wrap the body in grass, and bid him go tell his companions how hospitably he has been received, and how he has received a new cloak instead of his old one. A fuller account of the Koryak ceremonies is given by a more recent writer. He tells us that when a dead bear is brought to the house, the women come out to meet it, dancing with firebrands. The bear skin is taken off, along with the head, and one of the women puts on the skin, dances in it, and entreats the bear not to be angry, but to be kind to the people. At the same time they offer meat on a wooden platter to the dead beast, saying, Eat, friend. Afterwards the ceremony is performed for the purpose of sending the dead bear, or rather his spirit, away back to his home. He is provided with provisions for the journey in the shape of puddings or reindeer flesh packed in a grass bag. His skin is stuffed with grass and carried around the house, after which he is supposed to depart towards the rising sun. 
The intention of the ceremonies is to protect the people from the wrath of the slain bear and his kinsfolk, and so to ensure success in future bear hunts. The Finns used to try to persuade the slain bear that he had not been killed by them, but had fallen from a tree, or met his death in some other way. Moreover, they held a funeral festival in his honour, at the close of which bards expiated on the homage that had been paid to him, urging him to report to the other bears the high consideration with which he had been treated, in order that they also, following his example, might come and be slain. When the Laps had succeeded in killing a bear with impunity, they thanked him for not hurting them, and for not breaking the clubs and spears which had given him his death wounds, and they prayed that he would not visit his death upon them by sending storms or in any other way. His flesh then furnished the feast. The reverence of hunters for the bear, whom they regularly kill and eat, may thus be traced all along the northern region of the old world, from Bering Strait to Lapland. It reappears in similar forms in North America. With the American Indians, a bear hunt was an important event, for which they prepared by long fasts and purgations. Before setting out, they offered expiatory sacrifices to the souls of bears slain in previous hunts, and besought them to be favorable to the hunters. When a bear was killed, the hunter lit his pipe, and putting the mouth of it between the bear's lips, blew into the bowl, filling the beast's mouth with smoke. Then he begged the bear not to be angry at having been killed, and not to thwart him afterwards in the chase. The carcass was roasted whole and eaten. Not a morsel of the flesh might be left over. The head, painted red and blue, was hung on a post and addressed by orators, who heaped praise on the dead beast. When men of the bear clan in the Ottawa tribe killed a bear, they made him a feast of his own flesh and addressed him thus, Cherish us no grudge because we have killed you. You have sense. You see that our children are hungry. They love you and wish to take you into their bodies. Is it not glorious to be eaten by the children of a chief? Among the Nootka Indians of British Columbia, when a bear had been killed, it was brought in and seated before the head chief in an upright posture, with the chief's bonnet, wrought in figures on its head, and its fur powdered over with white down. A tray of provisions was then set before it, and it was invited by words and gestures to eat. After that the animal was skinned, boiled, and eaten. A like respect is testified for other dangerous creatures by the hunters who regularly trap and kill them. When Kafre hunters are in the act of showering spears on an elephant, they call out, Don't kill us, great captain! Don't strike or thread upon us, mighty chief! When he is dead, they make their excuses to him, pretending that his death was a pure accident. As a mark of respect, they bury his trunk with much solemn ceremony, for they say that the elephant is a great lord, his trunk is his hand. Before the Amaxosa Kafris attack an elephant, they shout to the animal and beg him to pardon them for the slaughter they are about to perpetrate, professing great submission to his person, and explaining clearly the need they have of his tusks to enable them to procure beads and supply their wants. When they have killed him, they bury in the ground, along with the end of his trunk, a few of the articles they have obtained for the ivory, thus hoping to avert some mishap that would otherwise befall them. Among some tribes of eastern Africa, when a lion is killed, the carcass is brought before the king, who does homage to it by prostrating himself on the ground and rubbing his face on the muscle of the beast. In some parts of western Africa, if a negro kills a leopard, 
is bound fast and brought before the chiefs for having killed one of their peers. The man defends himself on the plea that the leopard is a chief of the forest and therefore a stranger. He is then set at liberty and rewarded. But the dead leopard, adorned with the chief's bonnet, is set up in the village, where nightly dances are held in its honour. The Baganda greatly fear the ghosts of buffaloes which they have killed, and they always appease these dangerous spirits. On no account will they bring the head of a slain buffalo into a village or into a garden of plantains. They always eat the flesh of the head in the open country. Afterwards they place the skull in a small hut built for that purpose, where they pour out beer as an offering and pray to the ghost to stay where he is and not to harm them. Another formidable beast, whose life the savage hunter takes with joy, yet with fear and trembling, is the whale. After the slaughter of a whale, the maritime Koryak of northeastern Siberia hold a communal festival, the essential part of which is based on the conception that the whale killed has come on a visit to the village, that it is staying for some time, during which it is treated with great respect, that it then returns to the sea to repeat its visit the following year, that it will induce its relatives to come along, telling them of the hospitable reception that has been accorded to it. According to the Koryak ideas, the whales, like all other animals, constitute one tribe, or rather family, of related individuals who live in villages like the Koryak. They avenge the murder of one of their number, and are grateful for kindnesses they may have received. When the inhabitants of the Isle of St. Mary, to the north of Madagascar, go whaling, they single out the young whales for attack, and humbly beg the mother's pardon, stating the necessity that drives them to kill her progeny, and requesting that she will be pleased to go below while the deed is doing, that her maternal feelings may not be outraged by witnessing what must cause her so much uneasiness. An Ajamba hunter, having killed a female hippopotamus on the lake Atsingo in West Africa, the animal was decapitated and its quarters and bowels removed. Then the hunter, naked, stepped into the hollow of the ribs, and kneeling down in the bloody pool, washed his whole body with the blood and excretions of the animal, while he prayed to the soul of the hippopotamus not to bear him a grudge for having killed her, and so blighted her hopes of future maternity, and he further entreated the ghost not to stir up other hippopotamuses to avenge her death by butting at and capsizing his canoe. The owns, a leopard-like creature, is dreaded for its depredations by the Indians of Brazil. When they have caught one of these animals in a snare, they kill it and carry the body home to the village. There the women deck the carcass with feathers of many colors, put bracelets on its legs, and weep over it, saying, I pray thee not to take vengeance on our little ones for having been caught and killed through thine own ignorance. For it was not we who deceived thee, it was thyself. Our husbands only set the trap to catch animals that are good to eat. They never thought to take thee in it. Therefore let not thy soul counsel thy fellows to avenge thy death on our little ones. When a Blackfoot Indian has caught eagles in a trap and killed them, he takes them home to a special lodge, called the Eagle's Lodge, which has been prepared for their reception outside of the camp. Here he sets the birds in a row on the ground, and propping up their heads on a stick, puts a piece of dried meat in each of their mouths in order that the spirits of the dead eagles may go and tell the other eagles how well they are being treated by the Indians. 
So, when Indian hunters of the Orinoco region have killed an animal, they open its mouth and pour into it a few drops of the liquor they generally carry with them, in order that the soul of the dead beast may inform its fellows of the welcome it has met with, and that they too, cheered by the prospect of the same kind reception, may come with alacrity to be killed. When a Teton Indian is on a journey, and he meets a grey spider or spider with yellow legs, he kills it, because some evil would befall him if he did not. But he is very careful not to let the spider know that he kills it, for if the spider knew, his soul would go and tell the other spiders, and one of them would be sure to avenge the death of his relation. So in crushing the insect, the Indian says, Oh, Grandfather Spider, the thunder being kills you. And the spider is crushed at once and believes what is told him. His soul probably runs and tells the other spiders that the thunder beings have killed them, but no harm comes of that. For what can grey or yellow-legged spiders do to the thunder beings? But it is not merely dangerous creatures with whom the savage desires to keep on good terms. It is true that the respect which he pays to wild beasts is in some measure proportioned to their strength and ferocity. Thus the savage Stians of Cambodia, believing that all animals have souls which roam about after their death, beg an animal's pardon while they kill it, lest its soul should come and torment them. Also they offer it sacrifices, but these sacrifices are proportioned to the size and strength of the animal. The ceremonies which they observe at the death of an elephant are conducted with much pomp and last seven days. Similar distinctions are drawn by North American Indians. The bear, the buffalo, and the beaver are manidos, divinities, which furnish food. The bear is formidable and good to eat. They render ceremonies to him, begging him to allow himself to be eaten, although they know he has no fancy for it. We kill you, but you are not annihilated. His head and paws are objects of homage. Other animals are treated similarly from similar reasons. Many of the animal manidos, not being dangerous, are often treated with contempt, the terrapin, the weasel, polecat, etc. The distinction here is instructive. Animals which are feared, or are good to eat, or both, are treated with ceremonious respect. Those which are neither formidable nor good to eat are despised. We have had examples of reverence paid to animals which are both feared and eaten. It remains to prove that similar respect is shown to animals which, without being feared, are either eaten or valued for their skins. When Siberian sable hunters have caught a sable, no one is allowed to see it, and they think that if good or evil be spoken of the captured sable, no more sables will be caught. A hunter has been known to express his belief that the sables could hear what was said of them as far off as Moscow. He said that the chief reason why the sable hunt was now so unproductive was that some live sables had been sent to Moscow. There they had been viewed with astonishment as strange animals, and the sables cannot abide that. Another, though minor, cause of the diminished take of sables was, he alleged, that the world is now much worse than it used to be, so that nowadays a hunter will sometimes hide the sable, which he has got, instead of putting it into the common stock. This also, said he, the sables cannot abide. Alaskan hunters preserved the bones of sables and beavers out of reach of the dogs for a year, and then bury them carefully, lest the spirits who look after the beavers and sables should consider that they are regarded with contempt, and hence no more should be killed or trapped.
The Canadian Indians were equally particular not to let their dogs gnaw the bones, or at least certain of the bones, of beavers. They took the greatest pains to collect and preserve these bones, and, when the beaver had been caught in a net, they threw them into the river. To a Jesuit, who argued that the beavers could not possibly know what became of their bones, the Indians replied, You know nothing about catching beavers, and yet you will be prating about it. Before the beaver is stone dead, his soul takes a turn in the hut of the man who is killing him, and makes a careful note of what is done with his bones. If the bones are given to the dogs, the other beavers would get word of it, and would not let themselves be caught. Whereas, if their bones are thrown into a fire or a river, they are quite satisfied, and it is particularly gratifying to the net which caught them. Before hunting the beaver, they offered a solemn prayer to the great beaver, and presented him with tobacco, and when the chase was over, an orator pronounced a funeral oration over the dead beavers. He praised their spirit and wisdom. You will hear no more, said he. The voice of the chieftains who commanded you, and whom you chose from among all the warrior beavers to give you laws. Your language, which the medicine men understand perfectly, will be heard no more at the bottom of the lake. You will fight no more battles with the otters, your cruel foes, no beavers. But your skins shall serve to buy arms. We will carry your smoked hams to our children. We will keep the dogs from eating your bones, which are so hard. The Ilan, deer, and elk were treated by the American Indians with the same punctilious respect and for the same reason. Their bones might not be given to the dogs nor thrown into the fire, nor might their fat be dropped upon the fire, because the souls of the dead animals were believed to see what was done to their bodies and tell it to the other beasts, living and dead. Hence, if their bodies were ill-used, the animals of that species would not allow themselves to be taken, neither in this world nor in the world to come. Among the Chiquitis of Paraguay, a sick man would be asked by the medicine man whether he had not thrown away some of the flesh of the deer or turtle, and if he answered yes, the medicine man would say, That is what is killing you. The soul of the deer or turtle has entered into your body to avenge the wrong you did it. The Canadian Indians would not eat the embryos of the elk, unless at the close of the hunting season, otherwise the mother elks would be shy and refuse to be caught. In the Timor-Laut islands of the Indian archipelago, the skulls of all the turtles which a fisherman has caught are hung up under his hose. Before he goes out to catch another, he addresses himself to the skull of the last turtle that he killed, and having inserted beetle between its jaws, he prays the spirit of the dead animal to incite its kinsfolk in the sea to come and be caught. In the Poso district of central Celebes, Hunters keep the jawbones of deer and wild pigs, which they have killed, and hang them up in their houses near the fire. Then they say to the jawbones, Ye cry after your comrades, that your grandfathers, or nephews, or children may not go away. Their notion is that the souls of the dead deer and pigs tarry near the jawbones, and attract the souls of living deers and pigs, which are thus drawn into the toils of the hunter. Thus the wily savage employs dead animals as decoys to lure living animals to their doom. The Lengua Indians of the Gran Chaco love to hunt the ostrich, but when they have killed one of these birds and are bringing home the carcass to the village, they take steps to outwit the resentful ghost of their victim. They think that when the first natural shock of death is past, the ghost of the ostrich pulls himself together and makes after his body. 
Acting on this sage calculation, the Indians pluck feathers from the breast of the bird and strew them at intervals along the track. At every bunch of feathers the ghost stops to consider, is this the whole of my body or only a part of it? The doubt gives him pause, and when at last he has made up his mind fully at all the bunches, and has further wasted valuable time by the zigzag course which he invariably pursues in going from one to another, the hunters are safe at home, and the bilked ghost may stalk in vain round about the village, which he is too timid to enter. The Eskimos, about Bering Strait, believe that the souls of dead sea-beasts, such as seals, walrus, and whales, remain attached to their bladders, and that by returning the bladders to the sea, they can cause the souls to be reincarnated in fresh bodies, and so multiply the game which the hunters pursue and kill. Acting on this belief, every hunter carefully removes and preserves the bladders of the, all the sea-beasts that he kills, and at a solemn festival held once a year in winter, these bladders, containing the souls of all the sea-beasts that have been killed throughout the year, are honoured with dances and offerings of food in the public assembly room, after which they are taken out on the ice and thrust through holes into the water. For the simple Eskimo, imagine that the souls of the animals, in high good humour at the kind treatment they have experienced, will thereafter be born again as seals, walrus, and whales, and in that form will flock willingly to be again speared, harpooned, or otherwise done to death by the hunters. For like reasons, a tribe which depends on, for its subsistence, chiefly or in part, upon fishing, is careful to treat the fish with every mark of respect and honour. The Indians of Peru adored the fish that they caught in greatest abundance, for they said that the first fish that was made in the world above, or so they named heaven, gave birth to all other fish of that species, and took care to send them plenty of its children to sustain their tribe. For this reason they worshipped sardines in one region, where they killed more of them than any other fish, in others the skate, in others the dogfish, in others the golden fish for its beauty, in others the crawfish, in others, for want of larger gods, the crabs, where they had no other fish, or where they knew not how to catch and kill them. In short, they had whatever fish was most serviceable to them as their gods. The Kwakutl Indians of British Columbia think that whenever a salmon is killed, its soul returns to the salmon country. Hence they take care to throw the bones and offal into the sea, in order that the souls may reanimate them at the resurrection of the salmon. Whereas, if they burned the bones, the soul would be lost, and so it would be quite impossible for that salmon to rise from the dead. In like manner, the Ottawa Indians of Canada, believing that the souls of dead fish passed into other bodies of fish, never burned fish bones, for fear of displeasing the souls of the fish, who would come no more to the nets. The Hurons also refrained from throwing fish bones into the fire, lest the souls of the fish should go and warn the other fish not to let themselves be caught, since the Hurons would burn their bones. Moreover, they had men who preached to the fish and persuaded them to come and be caught. A good preacher was much sought after, for they thought that the exhortations of a clever man had a great effect in drawing the fish to the nets. In the Huron fishing village, where the French missionary Sagard stayed, the preacher to the fish prided himself very much on his eloquence, which was of a florid order. Every evening after supper, having seen that all the people were in their places and that a strict silence was observed, he preached to the fish. His text was that the Hurons did not burn fish bones. Then enlarging on this theme with extraordinary unction, 
he exhorted and conjured and invited and implored the fish to come and be caught and to be of good courage and to fear nothing for it was all to serve their friends who honoured them and did not burn their bones the natives of the duke of york island annually decorate the canoe with flowers and ferns laid it or are supposed to lay it with shalmoni and set it adrift to compensate the fish for their fellows who have been caught and eaten it is especially necessary to treat the first fish caught with consideration in order to conciliate the rest of the fish whose conduct may be supposed to be influenced by the reception given to those of their kind which were the first to be taken accordingly the maoris always put back into the sea the first fish caught with the prayer that it may tempt other fish to come and be caught still more stringent are the precautions taken when the fish are the first of the season on salmon rivers when the fish begin to run up the stream in spring they are received with much deference by tribes who like the indians of the pacific coast of north america subsist largely upon a fish diet in british columbia the indians used to go out to meet the first fish as they came up the river they paid court to them and would address them thus you fish you fish you are all chiefs you are you are all chiefs among the Tlingit of alaska the first halibut of the season is carefully handled and dressed as a chief and a festival is given in his honour after which the fishing goes on in spring when the winds blow soft from the south and the salmon begin to run up the klamath river the karaks of california dance for salmon to ensure a good catch one of the indians called the kareya or godman retires to the mountains and fasts for ten days on his return the people flee while he goes to the river takes the first salmon of the kutch eats some of it and with the rest kindles the sacred fire in the sweating house no indian may take a salmon before this dance is held nor for ten days after it even if his family are starving the karaks also believe that the fisherman will take no salmon if the poles of which his speeding booth is made were gathered on the riverside where the salmon might have seen them the poles must be brought from the top of the highest mountain the fisherman will also labor in vain if he uses the same poles a second year in boots or wares because the old salmon will have told the young ones about them there is a favorite fish of the aino which appears in the rivers about may and june they prepare for the fishing by observing rules of ceremonial purity and when they have gone out to fish the women at home must keep strict silence or the fish would hear them and disappear when the first fish is caught he is brought home and passed through a small opening at the end of the hut but not through the door for if he were passed through the door the other fish would certainly see him and disappear this may partly explain the custom observed by other savages of bringing game in certain cases into their huts not by the door but by the window the smoke hole or by a special opening at the back of the hut with some savages a special reason for respecting the bones of game and generally of the animals which they eat is a belief that if the bones are preserved they will in course of time be reclothed with flesh and thus the animal will come to life again it is therefore clearly for the interest of the hunter to leave the bones intact since to destroy them would be to diminish the future supply of game many of the minetari indians believe that the bones of those bisons which they have slain and divested of flesh rise again clothed with renewed flesh and quickened with life and become fat and fit for slaughter the succeeding june hence on the western prairies of america 
The skulls of buffaloes may be seen arranged in circles and symmetrical piles, awaiting their resurrection. After feasting on a dog, the Dakotas carefully collect the bones, scrape, wash, and bury them, partly, as it is said, to testify to the dog species, that in feasting upon one of their number, no disrespect was meant to the species itself, and partly also from the belief that the bones of the animal will rise and reproduce another. In sacrificing an animal, the Laps regularly put aside the bones, eyes, ears, heart, lungs, sexual parts, if the animal was a male, and a morsel of flesh from each limb. Then, after eating the remainder of the flesh, they laid the bones and the rest in an anatomical order in a coffin, and buried them with the usual rites, believing that the god to whom the animal was sacrificed would reclothe the bones with flesh and restore the animal to life in Jadmeaimo, the subterranean world of the dead. Sometimes, as after feasting on a bear, they seem to have contented themselves with thus burying the bones. Thus the Laps expected the resurrection of the slain animal to take place in another world, resembling in this respect the Kamchatkans, who believed that every creature, down to the smallest fly, would rise from the dead and live underground. On the other hand, the North American Indians looked for the resurrection of the animals in the present world, the habit observed especially by Mongolian peoples, of stuffing the skin of a sacrificed animal or stretching it on a framework, points rather to a belief in a resurrection of the latter sort. The objection commonly entertained by primitive peoples to breaking the bones of the animals, which they have eaten or sacrificed, may be based either on a belief in the resurrection of the animal, or on a fear of intimidating other creatures of the same species, and offending the ghosts of the slain animals. The reluctance of North American Indians and Eskimo to let dogs gnaw the bones of animals is perhaps only a precaution to prevent the bones from being broken. But after all, the resurrection of dead game may have its inconveniences, and accordingly some hunters take steps to prevent it by hamstringing the animal, so as to prevent it or its ghost from getting up and running away. This is the motive alleged for the practice by Kowi hunters in Laos. They think that the spells which they utter in the chase may lose their magical virtue, and that the slaughtered animal may consequently come to life again and escape. To prevent that catastrophe, they therefore hamstring the beast as soon as they have butchered it. When an Eskimo of Alaska has killed a fox, he carefully cuts the tendons of all the animal's legs in order to prevent the ghost from reanimating the body and walking about. But hamstringing the carcass is not the only measure which the prudent savage adopts for the sake of disabling the ghost of his victim. In old days, when the Aino went out hunting and killed the fox first, they took care to tie its mouth up tightly in order to prevent the ghost of the animal from sallying forth and warning its fellows against the approach of the hunter. The Giliaks of the Amur River put out the eyes of the seals they have killed, lest the ghosts of the slain animals should know their slayers and avenge their death by spoiling the seal hunt. Besides the animals which primitive man dreads for their strength and ferocity, and those which he reveres on account of the benefits which he expects from them, there is another class of creatures which he sometimes deems it necessary to conciliate by worship and sacrifice. These are the vermin that infest his crops and his cattle. To rid himself of these deadly foes, the farmer has recourse to many superstitious devices, of which, though some are meant to destroy or intimidate the vermin, 
Others aim at propitiating them and persuading them by fair means to spare the fruits of the earth and the herds. Thus Estonian peasants in the island of Ösel stand in great awe of the weevil, an insect which is exceedingly destructive to the grain. They give it a fine name, and if a child is about to kill a weevil, they say, Don't do it. The more we hurt him, the more he hurts us. If they find a weevil, they bury it in the earth instead of killing it. Some even put the weevil under a stone in the field and offer corn to it. They think that thus it is appeased and does less harm. Amongst the Saxons of Transylvania, in order to keep sparrows from the corn, the sower begins by throwing the first handful of seed backwards over his head, saying, That is for you, sparrows. To guard the corn against the attacks of leaf flies, he shuts his eyes and scatters three handfuls of oats in different directions. Having made this offering to the leaf flies, he feels sure that they will spare the corn. A Transylvanian way of securing the crops against all birds, beasts and insects is this. After he has finished sowing, the sower goes once more from end to end of the field imitating the gesture of sowing, but with an empty hand. As he does so, he says, I sow this for the animals, I sow it for everything that flies and creeps, that walks and stands, that sings and springs, in the name of God the Father, etc. The following is a German way of freeing a garden from caterpillars. After sunset or at midnight, the mistress of the house, or another female member of the family, walks all around the garden dragging a broom after her. She may not look behind her, and must keep murmuring, Good evening, Mother Caterpillar. You shall come with your husband to church. The garden gate is left open till the following morning. Sometimes in dealing with vermin, the farmer aims at hitting a happy mean between excessive rigor on the one hand and weak indulgence on the other. Kind but firm, he tempers severity with mercy. An ancient Greek treatise on farming advises the husbandman who would rid his land of mice to act thus. Take a sheet of paper and write on it as follows. I adjure you, ye mice here present, that ye neither injure me nor suffer any other mouse to do so. I give you yonder field. Here you specify the field. But if I ever catch you here again, by the mother of the gods, I will rend you in seven pieces. Write this and stick the paper on an unhewn stone in the field between sunrise, taking care to keep the written side up. In the Ardennes, they say that to get rid of rats, you should repeat the following words. Erat verbum apud deum vestrum, male rats and female rats, I conjure you by the great God, to go out of my house, out of all my habitations, and to betake yourselves to such and such a place, and there to end your days. Decretis, reversis, et disembarrasis, virgo potens, clemens, justitiae. Then write the same words on pieces of paper, fold them up, and place one of them under the door by which the rats are to go forth and the other on the road which they are to take. This exorcism should be performed at sunrise. Some years ago an American farmer was reported to have written a civil letter to the rats, telling them that his crops were short, that he could not afford to keep them through the winter, that he had been very kind to them, and that for their own good he thought that they had better leave him and go to some of his neighbors, who had more grain. This document he pinned to a post in his barn for the rats to read. Sometimes the desired object is supposed to be attained by treating with high distinction one or two chosen individuals of the obnoxious species, while the rest are pursued with relentless rigor. 
in the East Indian island of Bali, the mice which ravaged the rice fields are caught in great numbers, and burned in the same way that corpses are burned. But two of the captured mice are allowed to live, and receive a little packet of white linen. Then the people bow down before them, as before gods, and let them go. When the farms of the Sidiaks or Ibans of Sarawak are much pestered by birds and insects, they catch a specimen of each kind of vermin, one sparrow, one grasshopper, and so on, put them in a tiny boat of bark well stocked with provisions, and then allow the little vessel with its obnoxious passengers to float down the river. If that does not drive the pests away, the Diaks resort to what they deem a more effectual mode of accomplishing the same purpose. They make a clay crocodile as large as life and set it up in the fields, where they offer it food, rice spirit and cloth, and sacrifice a foal and pig before it. Mollified by these attentions, the ferocious animal very soon gobbles up all the creatures that devour the crops. In Albania, if the fields or vineyards are ravaged by locusts or beetles, some of the women will assemble with dishevelled hair, catch a few of the insects, and march with them in a funeral procession to a spring or stream in which they drown the creatures. Then one of the women sings, O locusts and beetles who have left us bereaved, and the dirge is taken up and repeated by all the women in chorus. Thus by celebrating the obsequies of a few locusts and beetles, they hope to bring about the death of all of them. When caterpillars invaded a vineyard or field in Syria, the virgins were gathered, and one of the caterpillars was taken and a girl made its mother. Then they bewailed and buried it. Thereafter they conducted the mother to the place where the caterpillars were, consoling her in order that all the caterpillars might leave the garden. End of chapter 53 Recording by Monsbru, Helsingfors, Finland